Where is your God? You can almost imagine those four words being kind of mockingly asked by the Egyptian slave drivers to God's people, uh, the Israelites, as they watched over them in their back-breaking work. After all, they were the ones in complete control. Uh, God's people, well, they, they couldn't escape from the exhausting work, the relentless hours, the threats of violence, the acts of violence, the bitterness of life. Where is your God? You could almost imagine those four words being asked by Egyptian mothers as they cradled their own newborn children and watched as the newborns of the Israelites were snatched away to be drowned in the River Nile. Forced labor, brutal genocide. Where is your God. You can imagine if you were an Israelite being asked that question, however it was said, would have hurt horribly because it rang true. Where was God? You seemed very silent. You felt very forgotten. You see, a few hundred years ago, everything had been different. A few hundred years ago, uh, they as a people had been welcomed into Egypt. They were an extended family. It was Joseph and his brothers. You know, Joseph with the fancy, fancy coat and his brothers. They'd been welcomed in. The Pharaoh at the time had said this, the best of all Egypt will be yours. Uh, more than that, when Jacob, Joseph's dad, died, Pharaoh sent his officials with Joseph and the rest of the family out of Egypt, back home to the land of Canaan so they could bury Jacob. And Pharaoh's officials mourned with the family. Here we are a few centuries later on, and what do we find? We find God's people experiencing the worst that Egypt had to offer. And we find Pharaoh's officials not mourning with them, but causing the reason for their mourning. What's happened is that there's been a new king. There's a new pharaoh on the throne. Life for God's people is unimaginably painful and horrible. Maybe you're here this morning. And actually, there's something in this, this story that seems to resonate with you. You're here because life hurts. And I don't just mean the kind of small frustrations, the minor inconveniences that we have to navigate in everyday life. I mean, I mean something that happens in your life that redefines things. That means pain is there and doesn't go away. And you're left asking why. And if someone were to ask you, uh, where is your God? The best you would probably be able to answer is, I don't know. That might not be you this morning. Uh, maybe you're somebody this morning who's walking alongside another Christian. You're trying to stand shoulder to shoulder with them because that is their experience. And actually, as you look on their situation, you're going, God, where are you? What's going on? Or, or maybe you're just seeing things a bit differently. Maybe you're just aware of the realities of the world we live in, where there is oppression, where there is genocide, and it seems to happen again and again and again. 
Or maybe you're like me and you hear the stories of persecuted Christians from around the world. On Wednesday evening, I heard a speaker from Open Doors, a Christian charity uh, supporting the, the persecuted church throughout the world, um, sharing stories of, of how Christians, because of their faith in Jesus in North Korea, are sent into labor camps. They're not labor camps, they're death camps. In Nigeria, how Christians have their houses set on fire so that as they flee, they can be cut down. Or in countries like Pakistan, if you're a Christian, uh, there is just inherent discrimination against you in every single part of life. So Christians are the least and have the least. Where is your God? The book of Exodus is God saying, I'm here. Loud and clear. Exodus is a book where God says loudly and clearly, I'm God. I am the Lord God. I am who I am. I'm the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet not leaving the guilty unpunished. In Exodus, we see God is the Lord who rescues, who rules, who invites people to encounter him, who comes to dwell with his people. So that's what we've got in store for us over the next few Sunday mornings as we head towards Easter, as we look at the first 15 chapters of Exodus. And it's what, we're going to, it's what we've got in store this morning. Where is God? Maybe as you heard, uh, Margaret reads that little summary from Acts 7 and, uh, and the second half of Exodus 2. You wonder, where is God in the story? Where is he? Where is he? And he seems to turn up right at the end, doesn't he? Those final three verses of Exodus chapter 2. Uh, pick it up at verse 23. What are we told? During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groan. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. What does, what does God show us about himself this morning? What do we need to hear? We need to hear he is the God who hears and remembers and looks and is concerned. And do you know what? We need to dig into this because if we stop there, let's be honest, God just sounds a bit like your slightly nosy neighbours who live up the road. Let's, I don't know, let's call them Deirdre and Dennis. They live at number 17. They twitch their curtains. They hear everything that goes on. They remember everything that's going on. They see everything that's going on and they are very concerned. Don't we want to say God is, God is so much more than that? And we're right to think that. And the, and the key for us to unlock this is to see what God remembered. Uh, do you see it then in verse, um, verse 24? As God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. See, the God of the Bible is not a nosy neighbor. He is a God of covenant. He is a promise-keeping God. That's what we need to hear this morning. God is a promise-keeping God. Every Wednesday, almost uh, without fail. Uh, in the evening, I drive through the village uh, and I spot on my way to the um, scout hut to do the um, scout and cubs drop off. I spot everyone's put their bins out. And I go, mental note, put your bin out, Devas. Drive home, walk through the door, distracted. And then it's pickup time. So I drive back through the village. 
little note. Put the bin out, Davas. Do the pickup, get home, everyone in, sorted, uh, go to bed. Go up the next morning, here's the bin lorry. Here's the bin lorry! Spurred into action. Why? Because I am forgetful. I am forgetful. Is God like me? Good news. God is not like me. God is not forgetful. Is it, is it a case that God hears and cries to his people and then forgets, gets distracted? No. No. Because this is not about God remembering to put the bins out. This is God remembering his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His deep promise. What was the promise? It was the promise that this family, this family would be God's people in God's place. They would become a great nation in the land of Canaan. And through them, God's blessing would reach out into every corner of the world. But God had also said to Abraham that for 400 years, his people, his descendants, well, they'd be strangers in a country not their own. They'd be enslaved and ill-treated until God would punish that nation and bring them out again. So when it says God remembered, it's not because God has forgotten like we do. It's saying God knew what he promised. He's been taking action. And at this point in the story, he's about to do the next thing in keeping the promise. God's not forgotten his promise. A few hundred years ago, God's people arrived in Egypt. They were welcomed in. They were an extended family. If you look at Exodus chapter 1, verse 5, if you close your Bibles, it's on page 58. See, they were, they were 70 in number. Go two verses on. What do we read? The Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Do you see? God is keeping his promise. But it scares the new Pharaoh. He's scared. And so he puts the Israelites into forced labor. They'll be too miserable, too tired for anything to happen between the bedsheets. That will sort my problem. It doesn't work. Verse 12. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Pharaoh nil, God won. Pharaoh goes for plan B. He tells the Hebrew midwives, uh, uh, as, as they deliver the baby boys, to kill them. Wow, that's quite a plan. That's a horrific plan. That's a horror. That's genocide. The Hebrew midwives will have absolutely nothing to do with this. And so what happens? Uh, chapter 1, verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. Pharaoh nil, God two. So Pharaoh goes to plan C and takes the killing of the Israelite baby boys into Egyptian hands. And maybe it feels like Suddenly, Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's winning as these babies are horrifically drowned in the Nile. And yet, at the start of chapter 2, we have a birth narrative. A baby is born. A baby is born to a Hebrew family. They hide him for three months. When hiding him was no longer possible, he's floated in a basket. The word there is the same word for ark as in Noah's ark. This has got God's fingerprints all over it. This baby is saved when in, in the very place he should be drowned. And who rescues him? Who draws him out of the water? Pharaoh's own daughter. And it ends up with Moses' own mum looking after him as his nurse. You couldn't, you couldn't make this up. But do you see how we, could, we just see that this is God at work. He is keeping his promise. 
God is lining up his man who would lead his people out of Egypt, Moses. Raised as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but notice he never forgets his roots, does he? When he saw an Egyptian beating one of God's people, his people, what does he do? He steps in. He takes action. He kills the Egyptian. And at this point in the story, we're tempted to think everything is unraveling. Because in in chapter 2, verse 14, Moses is being rejected by his people. When two Israelites are having a, a fight, one turns to Moses when he intervenes and says, well, who made you ruler and judge over us? Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled. It feels like God was keeping his promise so brilliantly and, and Moses was the man in the right place at the right time. It's gone, it's gone horribly wrong. No. No. Time's not right yet. In Acts chapter 7, a bit later on from what we read, uh, we're told that Moses thought thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. It's not the right way. They're not the right time. If we're quick to say Moses isn't quite ready yet, we need to be even quicker to say God's people were not ready to be led by Moses yet, but God was ready. We're told during that long period, Moses, uh, away from Egypt in this place called Midian, God's people continue to groan. God remembers his covenant. He takes the next step in keeping his promise. He is about to send Moses back to Egypt to deliver his people. But that's for next week. For us this morning, what do we need to hear? The God of the Bible. The God we've gathered to worship. The God we meet in Exodus chapters 1 and 2. The God we meet in Jesus Christ is a promise-keeping covenant God. The promise he keeps um, to Abraham that's worked out in the life of Moses is part of a bigger promise, a bigger story of rescue. Hundreds of years later, uh, God takes the next step in that promise and keeping that promise because a baby is born. And at that point, baby boys are being slaughtered. But this baby is kept safe and flees to all places to Egypt. And this baby is is raised up not to save God's people from slavery in Egypt, but from our slavery to sin. Instead of taking life, instead of taking the life of another, Jesus is the one who puts his own life down. He lays it down. He's the one who's killed to forgive us, to give you and I life. That we might become the people of God. We might be joined into that, that that God's blessing would reach into all corners of the world, including Burnley and beyond. With that promise of an eternal home that's to come in the new creation. This morning, God has not forgotten us. God has not forgotten you. In a few moments at communion, we're going to be reminded of the covenants. Jesus takes a cup of wine and says, this is given the new covenant. We're being reminded. We're not reminding God about it. He remembers his covenant. He remembers his promise. Whatever's going on for you in your life right now, or the lives of those around you, or the lives of Christians around the world, we can have total confidence this morning that the promise-keeping God is the God who sees and he hears and he's concerned. The promise-keeping God hears He hears every cry of help. He hears every prayer prayed in Jesus' name. 
God sees. The promise-keeping God sees. He sees every injustice done. He sees every action done in faith. The promise-keeping God is concerned. He has compassion. He has compassion towards you and to me. God acts. If we don't believe that, we just need to look to the cross again. He's acted in the most dramatic and defining way. He continues to act, his hidden hand directing our lives, just as his hidden hand was directing the lives of people in Egypt. And one day he will act again. But Jesus returns to judge everything and everyone. God is the promise-keeping God. He hears, he sees, he's concerned. And when we know God like that, when we experience God like that, it has an impact on our lives. And we get a little example, a little window into what that looks like in the first chapter of Exodus. There's three people names in chapter one of Exodus. One of them is Moses because he's the character who's going to kind of drive this storyline along. Who are the other two? Well, they're there. Chapter one, verse 15. Shifra and Pua, the Hebrew midwives. The most powerful man in um, in the world at this point, Pharaoh, we don't know his name. We know these names of these two incredible women of faith who courageously stand against Pharaoh and his plans. Why? Because in verse 17, we're told they feared God. You see, if our view of God is a nosy neighbor who twitches at the curtains, all we'll do is sort of do the occasional wave and then pay little attention. Or if we think God has just closed the curtains and left the house, We'll just have our heads down. But if we realize God is the promise-keeping God who hears and sees and is concerned, then we live lives that that fear him, not not because we're terrified and scared of him, but we're in awe and wonder of him, the promise-keeping God, the, the God who, when Pharaoh looked like he had all the power to make God's life, uh, make the life of God's people bitter, God's sovereign power wrote a very different story. And it meant these two incredible women of faith were courageous. They counted the cost. They're an example to us as we follow Jesus. He said, anyone who wants to come after me must deny themselves. Take up their cross daily and follow me. One of the lines in... um, when I was hearing about the work of Open Doors on Wednesday evening and the, the persecuted church was a Christian brother somewhere else in the, in the world, per, you know, in, in a place you can't imagine what it must be like to follow Jesus. And he said, and it's, it's echoes in my head at the moment, we're dying for Jesus. The least you could do is live for him. <laughs> 